Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are absolutely pleased to have our first ever sponsored episode. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Reboa today. Uh, Pride Time, the makers of Reboa, are so um, we're very lucky to have them on board as one of our uh, our first sponsored episodes. So we're very pleased to talk with two guests here today. First of all, Dr. Joseph Ibrahim, who is the trauma medical director at Orlando Health. Uh, Orlando Regional Medical Center, who is also an Associate Program Director of the General Surgery Residency. Joey, welcome to Behind the Knife. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. We're also pleased to have Dr. Steve Smith, uh, who's a Professor of Surgery and Trauma Medical Director at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, Dr. Smith, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, gentlemen, uh, for those who've uh, heard our podcast for years now, what we'd like to do is start off with, just tell us a little bit about yourselves first. Where are you from? Uh, where did you train? And how did it come to the point that you wound up at your respective institutions? Uh, Joseph, let's start with you. Uh, sure. I grew up in East Tennessee in uh, an area called Tri-Cities in, in the Appalachians there. And uh, actually went to medical school at East Tennessee State University where I stayed and did my general surgery residency. I was very fortunate enough to do my critical care fellowship at Orlando Regional Medical Center between I kind of did it out of the typical order. I went after my third year of residency and went down to Orlando uh, where I did my year, my critical care year, and then returned back to ETSU uh, for my final two years of residency where I stayed on as faculty for about two and a half years, at uh, which point I uh, had been in discussions with Orlando and, and they were in need of an additional surgeon. And I was fortunate enough to go back there and Became the trauma medical director in 2015, and uh, I've really enjoyed my role there. Steve, what about yourself? Sure. I uh, actually grew up in a very small town in uh, western Arkansas and attended medical school in Arkansas. And uh, quite honestly, my, my goals at that, uh, at that point in life were to be a small-town general surgeon. But I caught the trauma bug uh, as a second-year resident uh, when I was training at the University of Kansas in Wichita. And this was in the very early days of uh, trauma fellowships, and there were actually no approved uh, ACGME critical care fellowships at that time. So I, I did a combined fellowship uh, in the Los Angeles area, uh, trauma and critical care based at two hospitals, uh, St. Mary's in Long Beach and Martin, the Martin Luther King uh, uh, Drew Medical Center in, in Los Angeles. And uh, from there, I uh, had uh, uh, an obligation with the uh, United States Navy, which uh, I really enjoyed. I was on active duty for eight years and had a total of 28 years uh, active in the reserve before I retired. My first academic job was at uh, UC Davis East Bay in Oakland. That's now UCSF uh, East Bay. Uh, and then I had had uh, the pleasure of faculty jobs uh, back at the University of Kansas for a long period of time uh, you know, at, as one of the founding faculty for the Virginia Tech Medical mm -hmm. School, uh, as assistant chief for acute care surgery at Allegheny Health System, and uh, then a stint at the uh, University of South Carolina and uh, my current position at the University of Florida. Great. 
And I was hoping we could start off by uh, laying the background um, for where Reboa came from. How was truncal bleeding and uncontrollable um, abdominal hemorrhage and aortic control, um, how, what were the methods of, of getting hemostasis and trauma uh, prior to Reboa? Vastly, you know, the way, the way I look at this population is a lar- large portion of these either underwent emergency room thoracotomy or maybe you were taken quickly to the operating room and underwent thoracotomy and cross-clamping of the aorta. You know, otherwise they went to the OR and underwent uh, laparotomy and you obtained quick control just below the, the high, just below the diaphragm. But again, I mean, this is a poor, uh, or a population that we really had a difficult time in controlling the hemorrhage till we really got them, you know, into the OR and got them opened up, you know, and then there's a subset of that, that, that's the, the pelvic bleeding that even in the OR is difficult. You know, we, we've done a better job with things like interventional radiology the past several years, or even with preperitoneal packing. But for a, a good portion of these, I think a, uh, the main source for control was some sort of uh, occlusion of the aorta with some side of mechanical clamping or, gosh, I remember even the, the, the T-bar that we use more for aortic aneurysm ruptures and things like that. But even that could be used in, in extreme cases with severe hemorrhage from trauma. I think the... Uh one of the reasons that Reboa is so important and why we were early adopters and, and uh, uh, advocates of this technique is because the results with uh, the techniques that uh, Joe just talked about were so absolutely dismal. If you look at survivorship from uh, resuscitative thoracotomy for uh, subdiaphragmatic hemorrhage, particularly from the blunt mechanisms, uh, it's in the range of 1% to 2%, and uh, many of those patients are not neurologically intact. In other words, they've had anoxic brain injury. So the results uh, of ED thoracotomy in the patient population where Reboa is most applicable are absolutely dismal, and uh, obviously we need to make uh, improvements. And in the area of pelvic bleeding, I certainly agree, uh, even with... Uh, Early uh, intervention by the interventional radiologist within an hour or with immediate intervention in the operating room with pre, uh, pre-peritoneal packing, which is our preferred approach for pelvic hemorrhage at this point, uh, the results are still, still very difficult, and it's uh, much better to get control of the bleeding uh, with something like the Reboa prior to proceeding to those procedures. And gentlemen, when you say you were early adopters, can you tell us what year you guys started using Reboa? Walk us through the process of getting your institution to uh, sponsor and and facilitate this change in practice. Uh, I can go first. I I have uh, been an advocate of this uh, for uh, quite some time, to some degree, based on uh, a former resident of mine, Dr. Melanie Hain, who was at the shock trauma unit in uh, Baltimore, who worked with Megan Brenner and Laura Moore and others who were really the innovators of this technique. And uh, as early as about 2013, uh, we had read the literature and were very impressed. Uh, we decided to proceed in an organized fashion and have been doing this clinically for uh, about two and a half years now. Uh, we just completed our 21st Reboa placement uh, just the last week or so. So 
that's not a bad single center experience. The way that we did this was to uh, initially uh, educate everybody. Uh, our surgeons have really good catheter-based skills and wire-based skills, and one of our uh, trauma surgeons has also done a vascular fellowship. So we had some, some basic skills. Uh, we uh, did some simulation training, some training sessions for all our surgeons. We oriented all our residents with also a simulation session and uh, uh, a brief overview and slides, and we did the same thing for our operating room staff. And we also brought our very good vascular surgery division on board just to let them know what we were going to be doing because we thought inevitably there might be some vascular issue that would require their assistance. And they fully supported uh, the implementation of this because they had had very good experience with similar techniques for ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysms. So that's how we did it. We did some preliminary education, which took a few months. We had everybody on board. There were no issues with privileging or credentials at our institution. Uh, and again, it's been a pretty seamless introduction, at least at our place. Dr. Abraham? Yeah, we, yeah, we kind of mimicked that a little bit. We started, uh, started the process, it sounds like about the same time, 2014, I went and took the best course in Baltimore with our then uh, trauma medical director, and came back and started, uh, I was the associate trauma medical director at that point, and he kind of put me in charge of bringing this to the forefront for our institution. And you know, being a, a kind of a new person at this, I said, well, I'm going to get all the teams involved that are going to be a part of this because I can't afford to fail. This is one of my, my first projects. I, I got to make <laughs> it look good. So um, I did the same thing. I first went to the vascular surgeons because I knew if, if they weren't on board, then I was really in for an uphill, uphill battle. So got all of our surgeons. And we're a little different that we're not a university. So it's all private, you know, for the most part, they're private surgeons. So it's luckily it was one group of vascular surgeons that takes all of our uh, coverage. So I got them involved first, and they were very much uh, like what Dr. Smith encountered, that they were all on board. They said, look, it's a life-saving technique. This is going to make a difference. We're, we're, we're all about it. No problem. If you have a complication, we'll be available. Um, and you got to remember at that time, we're talking about the 12 French catheters. So it was a little different conversation than what we would have today, you know, using coda balloons and those things because they all require a uh, true art, open arterial repair. So we had to have that discussion as well. Who's going to do the repair? Do, do the trauma surgeons feel comfortable? Do they not? Uh, so we agreed that we would take care of our own repairs and only call them if there was some sort of complication. And you really need a, a champion for that, which in this case, it had to be me. So you're basically, once you start this program, unless you have a couple people that will really champion it for you, you know, you may need to be ready and available 24 seven when you start rolling it out. But, um, so those, they were my first conversation. Then I made sure and had every department involved aware of what we were going to do, what were the indications, and what were they going to see. So this, for us, included the emergency department, obviously, the operating room, the ICUs, as well as interventional radiology. And it really, for us, it took a little bit longer than what uh, they encountered at UF. It took us about a year to really feel that everybody was comfortable. Uh, the majority of my partners had been Credential, which that meant, by the way, that I had to write the credentialing process because none existed <laughs> for this. So, um, 
so, you know, I, I spoke with Megan Brenner and several different people about what do you do for this? So, uh, and everybody has a little bit different take on that. And I even got my vascular surgeons to give some input into that to make sure they were happy with the credentialing process. So once we had all that kind of taken care of, everybody had met, everybody was satisfied. We rolled it out about 2015 for our first patient. It, it really is important to have everybody informed and on board because even with the uh, impressive initial success rates of Reboa compared to the other techniques, it's still a very high population, a high risk population rather, and a lot of these patients are not going to uh, survive their injuries. So it, it would be easy to take shots at a Reboa program if you didn't have everybody on board uh, right up front. And I would advise everyone to try to do that. And just one additional comment. Uh, I also took the uh, best course in um, uh, Baltimore uh, in my early stages of interest. And that simulation and pressurized cadaver course is excellent. for. So for those who, who really need to start from scratch, I think a course like that uh, is uh, is really a good place to start. I do want to come back around and talk about the courses, but the one question I have is, you know, why now is Reboa becoming so popular? You know, we always are, you know, making advancements in technology and surgery and medicine, and the, the balloon uh, control has been around with such as TVARS and even and published back in General Vasco Surgery in 1986, there's a description of transaxillary intraaortic balloon tamponade. So why now is, is Reboa so popular? Well, you know, well, actually, the idea goes back back further than that. Uh, Hughes published the basic concept of Reboa in 1954 oh, wow. okay. uh, in his experience on three uh, Korean uh, war soldiers who were uh, horribly injured. Obviously, the technology was a lot different then. And, and I think uh, I'll give it my take now. I'll let Joe uh, uh, weigh in because I think his perspective may be a little bit different. I think it's really uh, two things. Number one, everybody is much more um, comfortable and familiar with endovascular techniques now. And if you look at uh, vascular surgery programs across the country, you know the majority of those procedures are performed with endovascular techniques compared to open techniques, exactly opposite of when I trained. Uh, endovascular techniques really weren't in existence. And because of that, our young uh, surgeons, uh, the current generation of, of surgeons who are just getting started in their careers, are really more familiar with endovascular uh, ideas and techniques than they are with open ideas and techniques. So I, I think it's, it's been a combination of things, the incredibly poor results from the open alternatives and the greater familiarity with endovascular techniques by the, the current group of guys who are going into to trauma surgery. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think the technology has caught up in, as uh, he says, the this you know the group of surgeons coming through now are more familiar. And I, I mean, I remember being a resident, and there was all, there were all these discussions. Well, they're more you know we're losing our operative skills from for our open cases, and we don't know what the long term effects of the endovascular interventions are going to be. Well, it seems that they're holding up. So I think people have learned you must like, you know, when laparoscopy came around and said, Oh, it's a fad. Well, no, it, it's here to stay. And I think the, same, the case is the same with endovascular surgery. It's just another tool. And 
I think when you talk about the initial Reboa that came out, which um, was the, the 12 French using the Coda balloon, kind of making your own kit, kind of modeled after what Shock Trauma did, I think there obviously there was a lot of hesitancy with that because there's a lot more risk for injury with the 12 French sheet, the 12 French uh, catheter, the need for arterial repair, making sure you don't leave a flap. But now you're talking about a 7 French catheter. That's, that's going to gain a lot more popularity because of the ease of placement. You've gotten rid of the long guide wire that we all had to use that, I mean, you had concerns of, you know, a little bit of sterility and those kind of things. With those long wires, you had to have two tables. And now you can, you know, confine it to one small box with an addition of a sheath that you can also transduce through and use it as, a, as an arterial line. So I think Again, the technology has just gotten better and better, and, and as was said earlier, the, the group of surgeons now are just so, so much more comfortable with that aspect of things as opposed to the open. Um, I think that makes a huge difference. It's amazing how some of that technology has pushed far forward uh, so rapidly. Uh, I know that Pride Time has worked tirelessly to try to do that. Uh, so let's dive right into some cases of how uh, you guys have seen benefits and, and seen saves that you might have not otherwise seen uh, at your own institutions. Uh, sure, I'll be glad to. Um, I'll just give my first two because they were the ones that really, you know, opened my eyes. I mean, I was a believer, but, you know, you're still a little hesitant. You're still not sure until you do that first one. A 52-year-old female who uh, was hit by a car, hypotensive at the scene, you know, GCS around 13, 14, but on arrival, her blood pressure is about 110. So x-ray is okay. Her pelvis, she does have a fracture. Not quite sure how extensive it is, but she's stable at that point. No widening of the symphysis, no SI joint widening. So we got her in the CT scan. All of a sudden, she has this large uh, pelvic fracture involving the left side of the hemipelvis with a large hematoma with what looks like extravasation within it. Um, I was actually back up in the OR at this point, and my chief calls up and says, hey, we just got back from CT, and her pressure dropped to 70 over 50. Well, so I think in a second, we were actually, I was closing upstairs, and I said, you know what, put an arterial line. This sounds like a great, he had already given her two units of blood. I said, he said she would respond, but then she'd drop her pressure. So this is the perfect candidate. So put the arterial line in, I'll be right there. So you know, finish closing, get down there. He's got the A-line in. We upsized it, put the 12. This is, again, with the uh, prior to the ER Reboa catheter coming out. So we had our 12 French catheter in. Um, we put the 12 uh, French balloon, the soda balloon up into zone three because we knew, you know, we had the luxury of a CT scan with no intra-abdominal fluid. So put it into zone three, inflated it. And the results were amazing. I mean, her pressure came up 120 over 80. Her heart rate dropped from 110 to 80. I mean, I literally, I almost couldn't believe how well it worked. And uh, we ended up taking her to IR at that point, and they embolized her pelvis, and uh, she went to rehab and did great. The second one, which is a little bit more impressive to me, well, but I'm also going to tell a little bit on myself here, uh, 21-year-old female, also hit by a car. You'll see a theme with that in uh, Central Florida, by the way. Um, hit by a car, had an obvious pelvic fracture, came in with a pressure uh, 50 over 30. So she also had a 
equivocal fast. So we put the Reboa into zone one, uh, took her to the OR emergently, actually had IR meet me in the OR to do uh, angiogram in the OR after I lapped her. So we lapped her, found a non-expanding hematoma, blunt trauma in zone two, the retroperitoneal area, zone two on the right. Didn't appear to be expanding, so we put a abthera on and let the radiologist do the arteriogram. Um, took the bolt, took the catheter down, by the way, at this point. And uh, she shoots arteriogram, and it looks negative. So we're thinking, well, it's venous. Well, her wound back starts kind of welling up. She's swelling up. And so I take that back off, and sure enough, that retroperitoneal hematoma is, in, is enlarging. So I put the catheter back up to zone one and inflated that and her pressure again stabilized again and we explored that area and sure enough she had evolved her right kidney, her uh, right kidney off of the pedicles there. And so I called for one of my partners actually who is my chairman, Dr. Cheatham, to come in for an extra set of hands and uh, he was just amazed because she's stable and we're not bleeding. He said, I need to look into this more. So that was really another thing, yeah, that helped me and helped us get our program was, you know, I had buy-in from my chairman as well now. So um, she did well. She uh, went to rehab, ended up having to have her uh, hip replaced, but she's back in college now doing very well. So, um, you know, those are my first two experiences. And I think that's a key thing, too, is you have to figure out, you know, what's going to make you successful, you know, to put it in. And this is just my own personal take. I knew I didn't want to put it in that patient that had intermittent pulses coming in for my first one. I wanted a pelvic fracture, you know, transient responder to show that this could be beneficial and save lives. So I really encourage people when I, when I talk about Reboa, I, I, if you're looking at your first case, that's the kind of thing you want to look for pelvic fracture, intermittent or a transient responder. And I think that that will show you the capabilities of this device, especially when you're first starting. Wow, that is quite impressive and in a wide variety there. Um, and so, Doctor Smith, uh, what are some of your earlier experiences? Well, I actually, uh, if we have time, would like to talk about four cases. Uh, and the Reboa was successful in all of these cases in stabilizing the patient, but two of the patients, uh, because of the spectrum of their disease, did not survive, and two did. And the first case that uh, we place the Reboa, and this is very, very early in our experience. We basically just trained everybody. We had a 20-year-old um, exchange student uh, who uh, was riding his motorcycle at an extremely high rate of speed, clocked at more than 100 miles an hour that lost control, and uh, came in uh, with hypotension and a positive fast exam. Uh, one of my colleagues was actually on primary call that night and uh, took the patient to the operating room and found a, a, a devastating grade five liver laceration, lots and lots of blood in the abdomen, and uh, did what was contemporarily the, the thing to do. Uh, uh, initially gained control with uh, packing and a brief period of uh, Pringle maneuver, and the patient seemed to do a little bit better, uh, left them packed, went to the operating room, but very quickly after, I'm sorry, went to the ICU, but very quickly after arriving in the ICU, that patient became unstable again, was taken back to the uh, operating room, and uh, I was called in to assist on that. 
And because the patient was so unstable and had received multiple uh, massive transfusions and, you know, we were 30 or 40 or 50 units into his resuscitation at this point, uh, despite the fact that it wasn't uh, acute in the emergency department, we actually placed um, the Reboa. And again, this was a 12 French sheath. Uh, We initially did a cut down to gain access. And with the Coda balloon in zone one, uh, inflated this, and, and the patient became uh, amazingly stable, literally in the course of a minute or two. It was just, it was dramatic. And that actually allowed us to re-explore the abdomen in a relatively dry field and found that the patient, as a part of his liver injury, had actually partially avulsed the right hepatic vein. And that's where the source of the bleeding was. Now, the placing the Reboa uh, was able to stabilize him long enough for us to get that exposure and actually decrease the, the amount of blood loss ongoing at that point. We were actually able to repair that, and the, uh, the patient was taken to the uh, ICU in stable condition and really stabilized. His, his uh, lactate cleared, his uh, uh, pH was normal, and uh, after a few hours, we were actually able to complete the evaluation, including a head CT scan, and unfortunately, he had a lethal brain injury. But from the standpoint of his subdiaphragmatic injury, uh, he stabilized immediately uh, upon uh, inflation of the Reboa. And this made everybody uh, in our place uh, believers, even though ultimately the patient died of a traumatic brain injury. Uh, from the standpoint of controlling hemorrhage and stabilizing hemodynamics, the Reboa had been uh, tremendously successful. Uh, and I, I can give you another successful Reboa with uh, a less favorable outcome. And then I've got a couple of cases I'd like to talk about where things turned out better. So let me, let me do that really quick, and then I'll, get, I'll turn it back over to Joe. He may want to give another case. Uh, we, were, we were consulted on a non-trauma patient, and this was a 48-year-old man who had chronic renal failure who presented to the emergency department and because of his history of renal failure was admitted to the medicine service in the uh, MICU because of uh, significant hypotension. And uh, on admission, he was found to have a hemoglobin of five, which is a little bit low, uh, as you all know, and a ruptured renal artery aneurysm on the right side that was causing a very large um, retroperitoneal hematoma and was a source of his blood loss. Well, to complete the picture, the patient uh, tells us that he's a Jehovah's Witness and uh, we're not allowed to transfuse him uh, under any circumstance. And at this point, his hemoglobin was two. (laughs) So uh, this was a difficult patient. We actually took him to the operating room before opening the abdomen of the retroperitoneum relieving that tamponade, we placed the Reboa zone one. His hemodynamics completely stabilized. Uh, the chair of anesthesiology was actually the anesthesiologist in this case. And he says, my God, what did you guys do? He's, he's stable all of a sudden. And once we got that control, we, we performed the nephrectomy in a relatively straight, straightforward fashion. And actually the patient was um, uh, relatively stable for several days, but ultimately uh, uh, went on to expire, not because of acute hemorrhage, but because of uh, uh, the comorbidities associated with his medical problems.
So I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Joe. And then I got a couple of more happy stories to, to follow up with. Well, I just you hit on something that I think is extremely important about this process too. And that's, I mean, with everything we do, right, is communication. And you have to communicate because anesthesia will comment. They'll be like, oh, you told us this was an emergent case. This guy's stable. And you really have to make sure they understand that there's no flow to the lower extremities and maybe to the abdominal viscera. And, um, you know, I, I know everybody's probably a little different. I always, as we're dropping the balloon down, I always have them give a little bit of bicarb. You know, there's not a whole lot of science behind that or anything like that, but I have just found that I see less of a pressure drop and things like that. that if I do that, as opposed to if we just start dropping, you definitely have to communicate when you start dropping the balloon. Another good case, I had a 34-year-old gentleman. Uh, he's actually with a respiratory therapist that used to work. Uh, his wife used to work at our facility as a respiratory therapist as well. Was in a car crash. It was T-bone or hit a hit a pole. I'm sorry, with the lateral aspect of his car, sports car, and came in. His pressure 60 over 40, positive fast. <clears throat> chest X-ray looks like stomach in the chest, and he also has a very impressive pelvis fracture with the left acetabulum destroyed. Um, the the femur head, femoral heads kind of pushed in through the acetabulum on the left. So you know kind of where are you going to go first but obviously he's unstable you're going to go to the or with that kind of picture so he got a binder he got uh he got a reboa though and you can put the reboa on with a binder that's a common question um sometimes you have to move it up a little bit sometimes you have to trim trim it so you can put the reboa in but i still put it in with binders and um put it into zone one initially examine the uh abdominal cavity head again the the diaphragm rupture on the left with the spleen, I think, was actually okay. And there wasn't a significant amount of blood in the abdomen. So at that point, which is another key thing, if I don't see anything that it's stopping, you know, the hemorrhage for and doesn't need to be in zone one, then I quickly drop it to zone three. So we moved it down to zone three, which is the bifurcation of the iliac. So now we're restoring flow to the kidneys, the liver, all the abdominal viscera. Uh, we fixed the... Um, left hemidiaphragm and then uh, did our arteriogram and um, embolized some small bleeders in the left hemipelvis and then removed our, our catheter. And that gentleman is actually a, a year out now. I got to see his daughter be born. Uh, he's actually back at work as a respiratory therapist, just went back to work. And just uh, one, of my, one of my favorite stories. I'll give two more real quick, if that's okay, Steve. They'll be real quick. A security guard struck by a car uh, doing his night patrol while in a golf cart, bad pelvic fracture, spleen laceration, positive fast. So we took him up, put the Reboa in, took him up. You know, we're thinking, man, we've got a great save. You know, after we got him stabilized, we took him for the uh, scan afterwards and had complete atlanto-occipital dissociation. Mm. So, you know, and progressed to brain death. So, you know, but I will say this, you know, we, we still saved five organs for that gentleman to be able to donate. So, uh, you know, that probably needs to be part of the conversation, too. Did putting that Reboa in get his pressure up and keep things perfused so that he could be a donor? Whereas, did we not have that intervention and that technology, would we have had that same capability? I don't know the right the answer to that, 
but I think we have to think of that as well. And then uh, the last additional case that took I'll give a non-trauma case uh, that we actually just recently had a 32-year-old G5P2 um, who uh, had kind of a late pregnancy here, and she uh, had a known placenta accreta. We got a call that morning asking if we'd be available, and of course we'll be available. And um, of course, then we got called when they were three coolers into the massive transfusion protocol. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of our standard now. When we get called on those, we take the Reboa with us. And uh, so we took that in. Uh, it was actually one of my junior partners. Uh, I got the call. Hey, can you come help? We're putting a Reboa in. This placenta creta. Just want to make sure everything's going smoothly. So. I get in there again, she's three or four coolers in and very hypotensive. We put that up, her pressure came up immediately and she kind of stabilized, but again, the tank's empty. So uh, we think we're doing good. We're getting surgical control of all the bleeding and she arrests. So we do CPR, it wasn't very long at all, probably less than two minutes. We get return of spontaneous circulation and um, finish things up, took the Reboa down and uh, that woman's fine. She, her belly's closed now. This is probably two or three months ago now. She has a 15 fully functional. So, you know, I think the main thing that from my standpoint is you're maintaining perfusion, right? Everything we talk about with shock and trauma and all these things is hemorrhage and perfusion. And I think, you know, by putting that up, we're getting that proximal pressure up, that pressure to the brain, that perfusion of the brain to the coronaries, to all those vital areas we're improving that as opposed to, you know, rushing off and just thinking, okay, I'm just going to catch up at the end. I'm going to start giving all this blood and I'll start clamping things. It buys us time. And it's still about while, while buying time, it is providing perfusion. And that's kind of my take on those. Dr. Smith, do you have any more to add? Yeah. I, well, I, I think Joe's exactly right. And the successful case that I wanted to discuss was a young lady who uh, I think it was 18 to 20 years old. I don't remember precisely. That was in a high-speed motor vehicle crash. Uh, and it was unrestrained. And her transport time was somewhat prolonged. So when she arrived, uh, she had uh, profound shock, uh, barely palpable pulses, uh, and a positive FAST exam, uh, and a uh, negative uh, chest X-ray. And again, this would serve as a good point to remind everyone that Reboa is really not indicated for supradiaphragmatic injuries. She also had a pelvic film which showed a disrupted pelvis, open book, uh, and uh, again was, was hypotensive. She received massive transfusion protocol and Reboa with uh, immediate improvement of her uh, vital signs, her hemodynamics really looked quite good. And in the operating room, she received an exploratory laparotomy, and we found a grade four liver laceration, a grade uh, four splenic laceration. Uh, she received a splenectomy and a hepatic packing, but she also had uh, a large retroperitoneal hematoma associated with the pelvic fracture. So she received pelvic packing through a, a, a separate incision, a suprapubic incision, um, and uh, that helped temporarily. Now, we're lucky at UF in that our primary uh, trauma 
operating room is a hybrid room. We have imaging capability in that room. So uh, in the same room, once we got some initial control with the techniques I just described, uh, the interventional radiologist was summoned and, again, without moving the patient, was able to embolize some arterial bleeders associated with the, the pelvic fracture. And she had a, a very successful outcome. She responded very uh, quickly to the Reboa and the massive transfusion protocol. And, and, of course, she's got a lot of injuries, and she was in the hospital for a while, but had a, a successful outcome and, and uh, went on to be discharged after a, a few weeks. And I think that that really represents a, a, a case where multiple injuries were encountered. Uh, we were able to gain initial control with Reboa. Uh, and then with uh, controlling the hemorrhage in the upper abdomen, we could uh, reposition the Reboa just above the bifurcation in zone three, restoring flow to the splanchnic circulation while maintaining uh, the blood pressure and decreasing the perfusion of the pelvic vessels until those could be more definitively uh, uh, dealt with. So I think that's a pretty good success story. I think that neither of those patients that I reported with successful outcomes after Reboa would have done as well uh, if we had tried to use supraceliac clamping at the time of laparotomy or if we had done a thoracotomy with aortic cross clamping. Those are just more... Uh, more morbid or less successful techniques. Well, I think those are all really great stories, and I, I think that's a great introduction to what's the indications for placing Rabo. We've heard you guys placing these, and what specific people do we not want to use it in? Yeah, so you get that question all the time. You know, it depends. you got to look at your resources, too. I mean, I think, again, when you're starting out, the transient responder, so with hypotensive. So for me, it's that patient who comes in, traumatic injuries, and their pressure is 90 systolic or less, or actually less than 90 systolic, who might transiently respond. Actually, our protocol is if it's less than 90, if they don't respond quickly, we're talking like they get 500 cc's, if they're not responding, then we're at least putting in our, our arterial line, our femoral arterial line, because we need to know what's going on. If uh, they get another 500, so now they're up to a liter, they haven't responded yet. You know, and obviously this is up to the discretion of the tra attending trauma surgeon, but at that point, we're seriously considering putting our Reboa catheter up. Now, where you're going to put it again, you need to do your fast and let that dictate. So if they have a positive fast, I think you put it in zone one. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Uh, if they have a negative fast, um, then I'm going to think about zone three and, you know, see if I have anything on my pelvic imaging that might match up. Now, that the caveat being, as, as Dr. Smith has mentioned, as long as I don't have any intrathoracic pathology that would preclude, preclude that, primarily a widened mediastinum that might indicate an aortic injury because, you know, as, as has been discussed, if you have a, you know, balloon inflated distal to that thoracic aortic injury, nobody knows for sure, but it just seems logical that you you could very well worsen that is there any concern about patients with massive head trauma uh, i'll tackle that one first sure. and the answer is no uh, I, I don't have concerns about that because if you look at outcomes with traumatic brain injury uh, the patients that are at greatest risk of poor outcomes are those patients that have either hypoxia or hypotension 
So restoring a normal blood pressure or, or an acceptable blood pressure, I should say, and restoring adequate cerebral perfusion uh, is not placing a patient with traumatic brain injury at risk, in my opinion. In fact, I think you're providing some treatment for their traumatic brain injury. And this has actually been looked at in an animal model. Uh, I apologize to the authors because I can't remember who they are, but they basically had 21 pigs. They divided them to three groups. They gave them an experimental uh, hepatic injury, which was standardized, and a experimental traumatic brain injury, which were standardized. And then they, they treated these three groups differently. For one group, they simply transfused. For a, a second group, they uh, fully inflated the Reboa to restore uh, blood pressure. And then a third group, they did partial Reboa uh, to try to restore somewhat normal physiology. And the group that did worst as far as uh, cerebral edema and their, their experimental trauma, trauma mat, traumatic brain injury was the group that only received transfusion the Reboa groups did better. So I have no hesitation at all in a patient with traumatic brain injury to place a Reboa. I, I actually think that you're, you're providing treatment that will improve the outcomes of that traumatic brain injury by restoring uh, good perfusion and normal blood pressure. I have one other question. Yeah. Uh, some patients that we see coming in the emergency room are either kind of, uh, you know, coding coming up the ramp or coding right as they get onto the table and undergoing CPR with really not much of a workup just other than, you know, hypotension and uh, just, you know, uh, essentially dead on arrival. Is there any uh, indication for Reboa in these type of patients? I'll be honest. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, again, rolling out a new program, I really wanted to be successful. So our initial response to that was we do not put it in somebody who doesn't have a pulse. That being said, I'm actually at TQIP right now at the Trauma Quality Improvement Program meeting, and I know some of the uh, bigger programs, you know, Houston and Shock Trauma, they do utilize that in their arresting patients at times. Um, you know, who's going to benefit from it the most i'm not sure i don't think anybody can tell you that just yet but again for for us particularly we do not put it in anybody that doesn't have a pulse uh, just because i especially you know you're talking about blunt trauma uh then you know the data on that has been shown that they're probably not going to have a, a good outcome no matter what you do but um you know we need to have a pulse for us to be able to utilize it or for us to to put that in and, um, you know, the other question I get along with that is, does it matter, you know, blunt versus penetrating? Are you okay putting it in penetrating? Initially, we were saying blunt only, but we have kind of changed our thought process, and now we use it on, on either blunt or penetrating as well. Okay, so now it's time for our tips and tricks. It's where we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints to get us out of these sticky situations. And, again, we're here with Drs. Ibrahim and Dr. Smith talking about Reboa, which for all of you out there, again, is the resuscitated endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta and the Pritime Medical ER Reboa catheter that's specifically designed for this. So, gentlemen, what we'd like you to do is walk us through how exactly you do deploy this and what do you do? Do you always need floral? What about ultrasound? How long can it be kept it up? And then walk us through what comes time to take it down. Go ahead, Steve. I'll, I'll follow up after you. Okay. Well, uh, 
you know, the, the technique, either with a 12-French device or the 7-French device, has been pretty well described in the literature. But you can't always do that as, as it's totally described. Sometimes these patients are, you know, pretty, pretty sick and you need to move along quickly. So I take the Reboa. I measure out roughly uh, on the patient's torso where I think zone one is going to be. And I mark that on the, uh, uh, the Reboa uh, balloon. We start a five French arterial line as soon as the patient presents with a history of hypotension less than 90. Uh, that has been a transient or a, uh, a non-responder. And uh, after doing a quick chest x-ray to make sure there's not a thoracic injury, if the patient's still hypotensive, then we will actually go ahead and place the Reboa prior to doing any further imaging studies. And we place it at zone one. And as soon as we stabilize the patient a little bit, we'll very quickly do a fast exam. And that does guide us on where to keep the, the, the balloon, either in zone one or zone three. And we'll do a pelvic film. Again, that gives us some additional information. If I can't tell where to put it, either with fast or with with uh, pelvic film, I'll leave it in zone one until we have more information. And then as quickly as possible, we get imaging. And in some centers, it may be just a plain film. In some centers, and uh, it may be a C-arm. In some centers, it may be a hybrid group. You, you identify where the balloon is as soon as possible to make sure it's either in zone one and zone three and not, not in zone two, where, where it's really not indicated to be. Uh, and that's how we generally place it. I'll turn it over to you, Joe, and then we can talk about removal later. Sure. I mean, I, I won't. Same steps. Sounds like same protocol. Uh, the only thing I'll say, I, I don't know if Steve said this. And again, most of the tricks that I talk about are things that I learned the hard way. So <laughs> kind of <laughs> the same mistakes that I made. So you want to make sure you have a column of fluid before you put that catheter in. So make sure it is flushed because it needs a column of fluid just like any A-line in order to transduce properly. Because what will happen if you don't, you'll put that in and you'll think you're at the desired zone or desi yeah, desired zone and you don't get a waveform. And, you know, the problem is there's not enough fluid in the catheter to create that, co that continuous column so that the pressure can be transduced. So it is really important that you have a column of fluid through there. So make sure you flush that just like we do any catheter before we place it. You want to make sure you flush that before you advance it and not flush it, you know, necessarily in the patient because you may give them a nice air bolus at that point. So um, that's one thing I would, I would add. Um, you know, the other thing, again, just like we said, you know, you get your measurement. You know, there are those cases and prior times put in a lot of, time and effort into measuring and trying to take the guesswork out of this and so you know what if you get the catheter in you kind of rush things like I, you know the placenta created a case i was just telling you about my partner had called me in he was advancing the catheter as i walked in the door you know what if you haven't measured well they've kind of taken some of that guesswork out for you and and most adults if you're wanting zone one you can put up to about 47 centimeters and you're going to be in about in the right place where you want to be for zone one and for zone three, somewhere around 28 centimeters. And, um, you know, the, the other things I'll say, other little tricks are you're not going to get that tactile sensation. So if you're thinking this is going to be like an embolectomy balloon, it, it's not. You really right. have to rely on that transduced waveform and watch that waveform as you slowly inflate that balloon. 
And once I see any transition of that waveform into a, a higher number, I stop and let things kind of settle out. And you'll be amazed at how quickly your pressure will kind of normalize, your heart rate comes down a little bit. But again, you won't get the tactile sensation. So that's extremely important to make sure you're getting that waveform before you uh, start inflating that balloon. Is this waveform the arterial waveform coming from the actual Reboa catheter you're referring to? It absolutely is. It's actually the sensor for it is is above the balloon. So that's why it can be used as a continuous transducer even after your balloon's inflated, which again goes to the efforts they've made. You know, before if you were trying to transduce with the old way we used to do it with the coda and you would kind of transduce through the side port, maybe on your sheath. But once you inflate, you lose that, right? right? Or if you have your arterial line on your other side, your other femoral artery, you lose that if you inflate it properly. So yeah. this is really a great design in that you've got your sensor above that balloon. I mean, it seems pretty simple, but um, you've got your sensor above your balloon. So you're still getting your continuous reading even after your balloon's inflated. And, you know, you've got to use your clinical exam too. You can't let that go away. I'll kind of tell him one of my partners, you know, he trained me. So it was kind of a weird, (laughs) a weird uh, situation. But he called me in, it was early on when we first started using it. And he said, hey, it's not working right. I don't know what's going on. And I looked at the patient's feet and one was red and one was white. And I said, well, (laughs) not in the right spot. And he said, well, how do you know? How do you know? And I said, well, one foot's red and one's white. And he kind of laughed and said, okay, you got me. So, you know, we took the balloon down, advanced it a few centimeters. And sure enough, we got a good occlusion, lost your pulses. So, again, there's no substitute, just as we all learned early on, for a good history and a good physical. So you really have to continue to do that. And even after you take it down, even though, as we've mentioned, it's a seven French, you know, much less risk for injury, you really have to check your pulses and document those kind of things. Um, right. You'd ask how long could you leave it up. I'll tell you there was a presentation here today at TQIP, uh, not my institution, but they they are very, very good at, at uh, Reboa placement, and their mean time was somewhere around 48. Um, have I left it in longer than 30 minutes? Yes, in extreme situations, but usually what I will do is we are very, very vocal about marking the time that balloon is up and then making sure we get at least what I'll say, you know, get, let's give the leg the drink at the 30 minute mark, even if we're still working and uh, we'll take the balloon down. I'll communicate with anesthesia. We'll take the balloon down for a few seconds or even, you know, the big thing now that they're really working on is this partial occlusion, which honestly I have not had as much experience with, but that's the big topic now is can we partially deflate the balloon, which we all kind of do when we take it down you know partially deflate it see how the pressure holds but in the meantime we're allowing those organs and or those extremities to get some perfusion and i think that's really important to recognize is at that 30 minute mark you probably want to start thinking about how am i going to get this down right immediately you really should be thinking about it as soon as you put it up how am i going to get this balloon down is it going to be ir or or and those are your only two options but the 30 minute mark, it becomes a necessity, an absolute necessity. Yeah. I, I, I agree with everything that Joe said. I think you made some uh, outstanding points. I just wanted to make three brief points uh, of things that I've learned. Uh, and again, we do learn from our experience. One, uh, Joe was absolutely 
absolutely right. You have to look at the arterial blood pressure and the arterial waveform to judge uh, when you have adequate uh, inflation of the balloon. If you just keep inflating and expect some resistance, you could cause some damage to the aorta or even rupture the balloon. You can use, certainly, if a, if a patient already has uh, radial art line in, you can use that to help guide you, but transduce the uh, uh, Reboa as, as quickly as possible. The, the Pritime system is actually very good for that to, to give you a, an aortic pressure. We do it essentially the same way. Secondly, and this is something we have learned through experience, that once you actually have that patient's vital signs where you want them, you know, with a good blood pressure, good mean arterial pressure, the heart rate's coming down, we think it's a good idea to re-image the patient very quickly to make sure that that balloon is in, still in the proper place. If you want it in zone one, that it stayed in zone one, uh, or if you, if you want it in zone three, that it stays there. Because we've had three cases where with a return of a pressure head, a normal pressure head, or sometimes these patients even get a little bit hypertensive, we've seen migration of the balloon distally from zone one down to zone two or three. Uh, just based on that increased pressure head. So I would recommend that you, as soon as you have stabilized the vital signs a little bit before you get involved in everything else, to image very quickly to make sure the balloon's where you still want it. Um, and that, uh, that is, is, I think, good advice. And the third thing is with deflation of the balloon. We mentioned this earlier. You really got to communicate very well with the anesthesiologist. You know, when you're inflating it, they're going to be really happy because the vital signs stabilized. But when you deflate it, you have to give them a heads up. Hey, you may see a dip in blood pressures. You may see some increased tachycardia. And yes, this would be a pretty good time to give some bicarbonate. And then you have to deflate the balloon very, very slowly uh, because uh, there's some variability in, in patients on how much their pressure will drop with very small uh, uh, decreases in uh, balloon volume. And uh, there's a, another very good animal paper that's been published in the last year or so that descri described a very rapid inflection point where you don't see much change in vital signs, don't change, see much change in vital signs, and then you take as little as you know a half a milliliter or a milliliter out of the balloon, and there's a very steep inflection point. And the, and the uh, vital signs can uh, change dramatically with small uh, decreases in balloon volume. So I think you know you got to go slow. You got to communicate with the anesthesiologist. Let them know what you're doing, and work together as a team. Now I, I think we're going to bridge into partial Rebola, and I think that we all do this to some degree. And I agree completely with Joe. You got to start thinking about how you can get this down as quickly as you can, because we've not had any. Uh, any long-term survivors with uh, Reboa inflation over 30 minutes. So I think that, again, we're all doing this uh, uh, subconsciously. We're releasing a little bit, seeing how the patient does, these sorts of things. But the actual ability to do partial Reboa uh, in an ongoing basis to maintain uh, normal hemodynamics uh, once the balloon's completely inflated, even by decreasing the, the balloon a little bit, that's going to have to be an automated system, in my opinion, uh, because it, it, it really requires, you know, minute-to-minute -minute changes. And, and when we're busy, you know, taking out a spleen or, or packing a liver or whatever, you really don't have time to do that as the operating surgeon. So I think that 
an automated system that is going to look at vital signs and correlate that with how much inflation is present in the balloon is really the, the wave of the future. And I think we're going to see that be uh, a, a good advance in, in Rebola technology. And if I wanted to learn these techniques, uh, where would you guys recommend uh, getting the, the training? Well, I, uh, I can't say enough about how good the best course in Baltimore is. That's, uh, uh, I went there just to, to make sure I had a good grasp of what was going on. It was incredibly well done. It was organized. It's my understanding that that course is, uh, is forming an affiliation with the American College of Surgeons. Uh, but it, that, that was really an outstanding course, and it had a pressurized cadaver model in addition to the uh, non-anatomic uh, 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 simulators that you could, could use. That was, that was a great place to start. How many days is that? That's one day. I, I would agree with Steve. I have a little bit different take. I, again, we, we both went there. Um, it's a great program, very well run. Yeah, they are working with uh, American College now. There are multiple courses coming up all over at different STEM centers. Uh, one in Houston, which is a busy center as well. I know Tampa has started doing these courses somewhere closer to us. But, um, you know, I think it's great. I mean, maybe send your whoever your champion for your program is going to be. But it can, you know, you know, just being honest, it can get expensive sending all your trauma surgeons up there. And I don't know that they absolutely have to do it on a profuse. It is really cool to do it on a, on a profuse cadaver. But I think, you know, I've had a few partners that have done it with some of the simulators and they've had very good outcomes as well. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you can do it uh, through some other means as well. I, I just think the main thing is having somebody that can champion it and go and have those conversations and to be honest more than networking like i can't say enough about people like megan brenner joe debose who were so willing to help me when i started my program and i'd have questions come up and i would email them and they're just incredible that they would email me within you know less than 24 hours and have my answer and i think yeah. that I, part going to those programs and doing that is really vital to yeah. starting your program yeah i i agree with with you i don't think you need to send uh, necessarily your entire complement of, complement of trauma surgeons off to a course because that would be uh, expensive in a very prohibitive fashion. But I think if, if, you, if you're looking for a place to get started, send the Reboa champion, if you will, to the course and let them provide education to everybody else. And uh, again, I think the networking is, is pretty important. And it, it, to some degree, it depends on the experience of your, your core of trauma surgeons. Uh, and your your trauma surgeons may have quite a bit of experience with uh, catheter uh, or wire based uh, techniques, uh, and they if they have that background, they pick up Reboa very very quickly with shorter periods of training. I also don't I, I don't think everybody needs to go to a to a, an out of town course and uh, to before credentialing could take place. Well, gentlemen, we want to thank you so much for taking the time out and talk to us about Reboa as well as the ER Reboa catheter. And for more information, you can also go to the sponsor of this episode, Prytime Medical, at www.prytimemedical.com. That's P-R-Y-T-I-M-E-M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. 
Um, and, but thanks so much for uh, sharing your experience and uh, in terms of getting this program started as well as your, uh, you know, your great experience with individual patients. Well, thank you so thank much you. for having me. Until next time, dominate the day. 